Hello and welcome to China Econ Talk. I'm your host Jordan Schneider here today with Dr. David Dollar, formerly of the World Bank and U.S. Treasury Department, now a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. Today we'll be talking about how the origins of the current U.S.-China trade war stretch back not just to the election of Donald Trump, but rather back、uh, to the global financial crisis and even further. David, so great to have you on today.、Uh, yeah, really great to talk to you. So、um, before we jump into today's today's hot topic of two、uh, hundred billion dollars and whatnot of of trade tariffs, let's go back in time a little bit to nineteen seventies Dartmouth. So where exactly did your interest in China come from?、Uh, well, it, it predates my college days.、Uh, so when I was in high school, I think there were a number of for me seminal events.、Uh, there was a course on Asian studies that I took during my junior year in high school. Which covered a lot of Asian culture, religion, history—not just China, of course, but India, other parts of Asia. And then I happened to graduate just as Nixon was making his famous trip to China early in 1972. So China was in the news, and there was a sense that it was about to open up. Plus, the Vietnam War was still raging. Pretty high level, so that was constantly on TV. So I think it was just a confluence of different factors putting Asia front and center. So when I went to college, you know, had in my mind that that was one of my interests, and I met some faculty early on who were quite charismatic and who said if I was serious about studying Asia, I needed to take a language. Dartmouth offered Japanese and Chinese. You know, lo- looking back, I think I made a good decision to go with Chinese,、uh, given the way the the world has gone since then. So initially, you started out studying history and then transitioned to a PhD in economics. Could you talk a little bit about the advantages and disadvantages of each when exploring modern China? Right. So I had broad interests in, in different aspects of Asia, and Dartmouth allowed you to create your own major. You know, you had to put together a list of courses and then defend it before a faculty committee. So I did a special major. Uh, I sometimes describe it as Asian studies, but the f- central focus of it was Chinese history, both the ancient history of the dynasties and the modern history of the revolution.、Uh, but there wasn't enough、uh, to make a major out of Chinese history at Dartmouth, so I also took courses in politics. I studied Chinese language every term I was there, religion, philosophy.、Uh, so it was a broad major. Ironically, I didn't study any of what would be called modern economics. You know, I had to read a lot of、uh, Marx and Mao Zedong as part of the background in the Chinese Revolution, but I didn't really study any economics. And then, when I was f- f-、uh, graduated, I went to Taiwan, spent an academic year studying Chinese in Taiwan, and that's just when Taiwan was just taking off as an export powerhouse, 1975, 76. And that really got me interested in economics, watching this phenomenal development that was occurring there.、Uh, so eventually, I, you know, decided to get a PhD in economics, which was a pretty big shift from studying history and culture and politics. I think having that background in history and culture politics that's really useful for understanding China.、Uh, modern economics is a very mathematical, abstract discipline. Gives you a different set of tools. Yeah, so I think having that that background in history plus those 
modern economic tools. It's served me pretty well. Let's fast forward 20 years now to when you show up as country director for the World Bank in China, a position you held from 2004 to 2009. What were the main priorities for the World Bank back then? Well, I think the World Bank's played a positive and significant role in China's opening and reform. And that role has changed as we've gone through different stages of reform. So in the early stages, and and I wasn't involved, so I can just be a little bit praiseworthy uh, without I'm not praising myself, but I think the early World Bank involvement helped with a lot of basic things like establishing markets for grain in the shift from planning to a market economy. Uh, World Bank did a lot of preparatory work helping China analyze the effect of trade liberalization and what would happen if it joined the WTO. Uh, So that was very supportive. By the time I came along in 2004, a lot of basic reforms had been done there were still some important macro issues. Uh, but my own sense was that the agenda in China was shifting more towards social and environmental issues. Uh, so there was a sense that with all the economic growth and progress, uh, there wasn't enough social progress in the sense of providing education to all, quality education. And then probably more importantly on the environmental side, clearly the industrialization of China had taken a very heavy environmental toll. Uh, So I tried to shift the program. It's like a big battleship. So can't exaggerate the extent to which one can shift a big big assistance program. Uh, But I tried to push it more in the direction of environmental and social issues. And then I would say we had some modest success on the environmental side. So we did interesting projects on reforestation, Uh, cleaning up rivers and lakes. So when I travel around China, I'm always somewhat proud for the whole institution. Uh, You know, the Li River down in Guilin area, West Lake in Hangzhou, the Pearl River. First time I went to Guangzhou in 1986, there were dead bodies floating down the Pearl River. It was basically just a big cesspool. And when I was there about two years ago, there were people swimming in the Pearl River. So very dramatic progress in cleaning up some rivers and lakes in China. Of course, there's still quite serious problems, uh, but I think the World Bank uh, helped quite a bit in the water area. And then also more recently working on air pollution issues, you know, helping cities like Beijing uh, take different steps that would reduce the terrible air pollution that shortens people's lives there. So, so I think there's still a role for an institution like the World Bank but it's naturally shifted over time. So we had Julian Gerwitz on the show about a year ago talking about how Western experts engaged with the Chinese government during Gaiga Kaifang, the initial reform period of the 1980s. So how do you think the Chinese government's view of the proper role foreigners have in assisting the PRC has changed over time? Right. My first experience as a foreign expert in China was before I joined the World Bank. You know, my first job out of graduate school was teaching at UCLA And I had an opportunity to go to China on a Ford Foundation program in the spring of 1986. And I taught microeconomics to an elite group of graduate students at the Chinese Academy of Social Science Graduate School. And so I was a foreign expert with a foreign expert card. I was paid in – back then there was a dual currency system. I was paid in real Chinese renminbi and had a special card that allowed me to spend those. Foreigners who just came as tourists had to buy a different currency called uh, FEC, probably foreign exchange certificate. 
Anyway, I, I was living with other foreign experts in the Friendship Hotel. And my sense was that a lot of what China was looking for was really basic things. So I was just teaching the same kind of microeconomics you would teach in advanced undergraduate course, supply and demand, uh, and different uh, aspects of microeconomics. Other foreign experts were, you know, uh, civil engineers helping with the design of the initial highway system in China, uh, bridges, just a lot of basic things. So I think the early involvement in the World Bank, again, I emphasize that I was not involved, but my understanding is a lot of it focused on basic things, macroeconomic policies, how do you reform the tax system, which they did in 1994, 1995 to ensure you've got adequate revenue. So I think a lot of the initial use of foreign experts was just to fill real absences in basic knowledge in China about economics and engineering and probably sciences, though I wasn't involved in that. And then over time, China has developed this tremendous capacity in all of these different areas. Uh, and so I think now what they look for from foreign experts, including engagement with the World Bank, they're looking for much, much more high-level specialized knowledge. You know, just, just one example, one of the the studies I oversaw that I was proud of is we helped China do the first serious estimates of premature death from air pollution uh, and brought in some of the top experts in the world. That's the advantage of an institution like World Bank. It's got a lot of solid experts, but for something like that, you bring in the best two or three people in the world. They might be sitting at a university in Europe or they might be at the University of California uh, wherever they are, you find them and you, you bring them and you, you know, you pay them to contribute to the project. And so I think increasingly, you know, China's been looking for top experts to help with different types of problems. What's your position on AIIB, the Asian Infrastructure Development Bank founded by China in 2015, uh, a bank that some American politicians view as a counterbalance to the World Bank itself? So I have some involvement with the AIB. I've done some consulting for them and I've been involved since the very start in a small way, just being honest with you. Uh, I'm a big fan of the AIB. Uh, you know, we have a global system in which there are multiple development banks, right? So we already have World Bank, Asian Development Bank, Inter-American Development Bank, so on, so on. Uh, so I don't see it as a challenge to the international system that China was proposing to start a new bank. And I think what's distinctive is they wanted to focus it on infrastructure and growth, which is what a lot of developing countries are looking for. And they wanted to avoid some of the bureaucracy that's really you know, enveloped the World Bank. Uh, so while I'm proud of a lot of the things the World Bank's done in China, I also think it's become overly bureaucratic uh, in the sense that there's just uh, there's just so many levels of scrutiny. Uh, the different types of regulation are often hundreds of pages long. So, uh, you know, I was running essentially the biggest World Bank assistance program in terms of number of projects. And so I'm very familiar. Uh, you know, I feel like I made it work reasonably well. Uh, but I support the Chinese idea that you could create a leaner, more efficient development bank. So I think it's off to a really good start. Uh, the Ministry of Finance of China, which took the lead developing this, they hired a number of retired World Bank staff. Uh, I played a small role, as I said, but some of my former colleagues 
from the legal department of the World Bank helped write the basic articles of agreement. Uh, the person who was my procurement specialist in Beijing, he's been heading up their procurement. Uh, one of the top World Bank environmental and social specialists has been working as a consultant on the environmental and social aspects of their initial projects. So, uh, so I think the Chinese were smart to bring in uh, a number of retired people with decades of experience. Uh, and but it, you know, I emphasize the Chinese had a pretty clear idea that they wanted to focus this on infrastructure and growth, and they wanted to make it uh, they call it lean green and clean. So they want it to be less bureaucratic, but environmentally sound, and of course, uh, no corruption. Oh, it's interesting hearing that take on the AIIB, since as you previously mentioned, your focus at the World Bank seemed to be turning away from these big infrastructure projects and more towards social and environmental work. Well, when I talked about shifting the World Bank program in China more toward environmental issues, we were still doing big infrastructure projects, right? A lot of the cleanup of rivers and lakes requires investment in sewers and wastewater treatment. Uh, reforestation requires investment. Air pollution is slightly different in that it's mostly a policy uh, set of issues. Uh, in the countries that, that are borrowing from AIB, curiously enough, India is the biggest borrower. Uh, and there are also significant projects in countries like Bangladesh, Indonesia, uh, so far, the projects have mainly been in roads and power, uh, and there are always environmental issues involved uh, in doing those kind of projects. So I think if you look at the AIB website, you know, their standards for environmental and social safeguards are very good. Uh, they've also done their first project outside of Asia re recently, which is a solar power project in Egypt. You know, so. I do think the world has learned China is slight risk of caricature. You know, China did a lot of industrialization that created environmental problems. You know, now it's spending a lot of money cleaning up. Uh, it would have been more rational to build more environmental protection in right from the start. You know, maybe not the same environmental protection you have in the United States because if you're a poor country, you have different trade-offs. Uh, but I don't think it's sufficient to pollute the place and then pay to clean it up, I think you could build in uh, more environmental protection along the way. And I think that's now the main thinking in development. And you're going to see that in AIB projects. Coming back to our theme on the origins of the trade war, over the mid to late 2000s, of course, China went on a growth tear. Could you talk about that and connect it to what we're seeing now in terms of today's trade tensions? Well, I think pre-global financial crisis. So, so thinking from China joined the WTO in 2001, and the global financial crisis really affected China starting in late 2008. I think that stretch there, I think of often as the golden age of Chinese growth. You know, it accelerated above 10%. It averaged above 10% during that period. There was remarkable improvement in people's lives, tremendous poverty reduction in a relatively short period of time. You know, so I think we have to look back and, and see a lot of success there. But I do think the Chinese made some macroeconomic mistakes. They had pegged their currency to the dollar in 1993 or 4, if I remember correctly. And that was a good choice at an early stage. They, they were still trying to establish credibility with their own people and with the world market. Uh, but by the early 2000s, I think the currency had become undervalued. You know, China had very rapid productivity growth. 
And so pegging to the dollar over a long period of time was essentially created problem of undervaluation of the currency. China was becoming more and more competitive in more and more sectors. And that's when they really developed this large trade surplus. By the mid-2000s, it was up to 10% of GDP or so. And the Chinese, I think, had a certain pride in this enormous trade surplus. And, and to maintain that exchange rate peg, they had to be buying a lot of dollars, investing in treasury bonds. This is when they built up the $4 trillion of reserves. Uh, and I think that was a mistake. It's not efficient for a poor developing country to have $4 trillion parked in low return treasury bills and bonds. And it in crowded out other things. You know, so in that stretch, China had a very conservative fiscal policy because it was getting so much stimulus from the external sector. It, its exports were growing faster than 20% per year. Trade surplus was rising. All of that tends to be inflationary. And to fight that, they pulled back on government spending. You know, so after the crisis, they got enormously involved in infrastructure, and that's what we think of now, the high-speed rail and all the expressways. But there was a stretch in the mid-2000s where, in my view, they were under-investing in infrastructure, uh, and, and that was, in some sense, the counterpart to this enormous export surge. It, it's kind of a small criticism in the sense that uh, I think just a modest amount of, of appreciation uh, away from that peg, which was 8.3 Chinese yuan to the dollar, a modest amount of appreciation away from that, more fiscal spending on infrastructure at that time, it would have give them, given them a more balanced growth path leading up to the global financial crisis. But you know, basically, I called it the golden age of growth. You have to recognize tremendous progress was made, but there were some, some problems building up. Now we come to 2008, the financial crisis, as you write, the shock of faith in the market system. So before this moment, many of the Chinese reforms seemed to be aiming towards this Western American neoliberal model. What, what would you say is the psychological impact of the financial crisis in China? Uh, I have to start by saying that I don't really like the word neoliberal. I guess I'm not completely clear you know, what it stands for. But I think in, in, in reality, a country like China, as it was going through reform, it was definitely moving more toward a market system. And I think it made a lot of progress. So, you know, lots of things happen in China primarily based on the market. Most of their exports come from the private sector, for example, and they're all subject to international competition. So clearly China was moving toward a market system but it was going to retain a strong government uh, managing many things in the economy. It ended up keeping a significant state enterprise sector. Uh, so I guess I don't, I don't really see China as moving to something like neoliberalism, but I see them you know, taking some very big steps in the direction of more market orientation, you know, rem remembering that they started out as essentially a completely planned economy under Chairman Mao. But anyway, the, in many aspects of the economy, they were thinking of the United States as a model. Uh, and you can see in a lot of different areas, you know, the, the U.S. has this very complicated regulation of the financial system with lots of different regulators. Uh, for a long time, commercial banking was separated from investment banking. 
I don't, I don't want to go into technical details about what exactly that means. But the point is the U.S. had some distinctive features of its financial system. And as China reformed its financial system, uh, it was following a lot of that U.S. blueprint. Even though many experts would say parts of that U.S. system you don't really want to think of as a blueprint. But the Chinese set up separate regulators. They had a banking regulator, an insurance regulator, something like our Securities and Exchange Commission, the uh, China uh, Securities Regulatory Commission. Uh, so they were kind of following uh, in some ways a U.S. blueprint. So I definitely had Chinese friends in these areas who were who were shocked when you know one of the reforms uh, before the financial crisis is the U.S. repealed our Glass-Steagall Act, which is what had separated investment and commercial banking. Uh, and all of a sudden, our big commercial banks and big investment banks were allowed to merge, and, and that's what you see. And that kind of surprised the Chinese. They were they were following a certain playbook, and then all of a sudden, you know, the United States changed the playbook. Um, but that's just one small example that you know that there were a lot of areas. Uh, you know, China set up an environmental protection agency. Uh, had a lot of similarities with the U.S. counterpart. China set up a center for disease control, has very tight uh, collaboration with the U.S. CDC. There are just a lot of uh, technical areas in finance and other parts of government you know, where China really seemed to be following the United States as a model. And then the global financial crisis came, uh, and, and that was a big shock, obviously, to the world economy. But I think it was a shock to Chinese confidence uh, that the United States was a good model for financial and economic regulation. So one of the things I mentioned in, in my blog briefly, it's one of the last things I did for the World Bank is I went to the Hebei Party School in Shijiazhuang and lectured to at least 500 you know, local government officials. And as you know, local government officials in China, you might be the head of a county, you know, with with millions of people, right? Hebei province probably has close to 100 million people. Um, and I was talking about how China could turn the global financial crisis in some sense to its advantage because I, as I already told you, I, I think pre-crisis, China was relying too much on the export sector. And it wasn't investing enough in infrastructure, but also social environmental things. As I said, when I, you know, went to China in 2004, that's kind of the first thing that struck me is that they were underdeveloped in a lot of social and environmental areas. And so the crisis, in some sense, was forcing change on China because their exports declined by a third within just a few months of last few months of 2008. It was quite terrifying. Uh, and so they were going to need to replace that with domestic demand, and that would have to be multifaceted. But certainly there was the potential to uh, get back into infrastructure, which they've clearly done with rail and roads and wastewater treatment, these kind of projects. There was also the potential to put a lot more resources into social and environmental, which they've done to some extent, but I think not, not as fully as they could have done. But what I remember from that lecture is, uh, you know, after I finished my talk and there was Q and A, one of the questions from I think a governor of a county, uh, 
you know, his question literally was, well, we used to think the U.S. was the model for everything, and now we don't know what to think. And I kind of chuckled because I, I, I didn't see that China was the U.S. using the U.S. as the model for everything if you think about social and political issues. Uh, but clearly on the economic side, there was a lot of truth in what the gentleman was saying. And now all of a sudden, you know, confidence in this and in, in what China was learning from the U.S., this was really shaken by the global financial crisis. Now to 2009, when you assumed this new role at the U.S. Embassy in Beijing as the Treasury Department's emissary. Could you talk about how at that time you were communicating with the Chinese government about these macro issues? Right. So as I started that work in uh, July 2009, I walked out of the World Bank office in Guamao on a Friday afternoon and I walked into the U.S. Embassy on a Monday morning, uh, you know, just in time to help organize the first strategic and economic dialogue, which was held in Washington a couple of weeks later. And I would say at that point, there was a lot of focus on macroeconomic concerns, this lack of demand in the world as, you know, the world economy was really going into free fall, decline of trade. And in the background, you know, leading up to that, uh, as I said, China had a very large trade surplus. It had an undervalued currency. So as we started that dialogue, I think there were definitely these macro concerns about imbalances, uh, global macro concern about lack of demand. And then there were also a set of what are often referred to as structural issues, you know, concern that many markets in China were still relatively closed uh, and that you know, that was increasingly becoming a source of tension between China and the U.S. So I look back and I would say the early result of this, this heightened exchange between China and the U.S., I would say the early results were pretty good. You know, China came in with this massive stimulus program, which in a lot of ways, you know, helped the world economy quickly recover. You know, the world economy uh, led by China has done reasonably well coming out of the global financial crisis. It took a long time for the developed world, United States, Europe, Japan, uh, to get back on track. But the world economy led by developing countries has actually done pretty well starting right in 2010. It's interesting because at the time you had Secretary Geithner running around the world begging for stimulus packages like what Obama pulled off at Congress, but he got the cold shoulder from America's allies in Europe, while the Communist Party actually seemed to be more in line with his analysis of the macro challenges facing the global economy. Yeah, there was a very good meeting of minds. A lot of those early meetings were quite friendly. You know, uh, and you know, the U.S. side, you had Ben Bernanke as chairman of the Fed. Christina Romer was the head of the economic advisors, uh, Tim Geithner, Secretary of Treasury, Larry Summers was the chief economic advisor in the White House. So you had a pretty impressive U.S. team and facing off with Wang Qishan, Joshua Chuan, Lu Jiwei, uh, Yi Gang at the vice governor level, pretty impressive group on the Chinese side. And there were a lot of friendly meetings uh, because the U.S. and China agreed on the need for a big fiscal stimulus. Uh, both were pursuing monetary stimulus. Uh, and um, China's – that large current account surplus of China that I mentioned, that came down very quickly. Uh, and I f feel like we don't give enough credit to China that of those first few – of the different issues we raised starting in 2009, 
China made a lot of progress on reducing its overall surplus, which is now down to about 1% of GDP from above 10, uh, and then China's contribution to global stimulus. Uh, so they deserve a lot of credit for that, but that's all forgotten in the United States. Because I did mention the third issue of structural reforms, and unfortunately, I think the crisis caused China to become very timid about further opening up. And so we did lose about a decade, uh, roughly from 2008 to now, where there has not been a lot of further reform and opening up in China. And that's one of the sources of this current trade war. You know, Because I left the World Bank in the summer of 2009, uh, some of my early involvement in China's crisis response, I was still working for the World Bank, right? Then I shifted over. So early in 2009, we brought in some leading experts on, you know, foreign experts on China economy and macro to advise China on the stimulus program. Uh, and I remember just the foreign expert group, you know, we had a wrap-up dinner together and there were probably about eight of us. And so we played a little game of, you know, every, everybody had to give their estimate for what China's GDP growth would be in 2009. And everybody thought this was a pretty serious shock. And even with the best policies, you know, it, it was going to take a hit. China was going to take a hit. So most of the estimates were in the fives, as I recall. I think my own was probably something like 5.5. Uh, it was a you know, a little confidential game, so I don't want to mention names. Um, I think the best estimate, the strongest estimate was in the high fives, if I remember correctly. But anyway, you know, China in the end had such a massive stimulus that their 2009 growth far exceeded uh, what all these foreign experts thought would be possible for China, even with the best response. So that was pretty impressive. So turning now to the shift in the U.S.-China relationship, it's been pretty stark just how much American experts who focus on China have soured on the PRC. So what, in your opinion, has driven this shift? Right. So I think there are a couple things going on. So first of all, before the global financial crisis, you know, China was growing very fast. It was becoming an important player in the world market. But the U.S. economy was five times as big as the Chinese economy. So, you know, so in, in a lot of discussions, there was unhappiness with various Chinese practices, but also a recognition that it's it, not that important for the U.S. economy. So one thing the crisis did is it, you know, China responded in a way that got it back on its growth path very quickly. Uh, the U.S. has had nearly a lost decade. In, in my view, the U.S. did not do enough fiscal stimulus uh, and the U.S. needs to invest in infrastructure. There are plenty of issues in the U.S. Uh, but anyway, at the end of all this, now today, the U.S. economy is about 50% bigger than China. So it's bigger, but it's in the same ballpark. Fairly soon, we can anticipate China being the largest economy in the world. So I think that uh, yeah, that has by itself had some effect on U.S. attitudes. And then you add to it that there really hasn't been further opening and reform in China over the past 10 years. And I think the Chinese miss the fact that around the rest of the developing world, there have been distinct trends toward more openness. You know, India is a good example. Latin America is very open. And so now it, when we look at some specific issues like China's investment restrictions, that's, you know, quite a bit of the tension between China and the U.S. is around their restrictions on investment. Foreigners can't come in and 
have a you know to have a hundred percent owned auto assembly plant, for example, uh, they can't do banking a hundred percent foreign owned. Uh, a lot of healthcare is relatively closed. And so now in my discussions with Chinese officials, I always point out, you're now the most closed of all the economies in the G20, with the possible exception of Saudi Arabia, which let's leave that aside. It's a very special kind of economy. But China's less open than India, Brazil, Indonesia. So I'm not comparing it to Europe. I'm comparing it to other big emerging markets. Uh, And foreign firms in general have gotten very frustrated uh, at their very restricted opportunities. And then in some of these sectors, they're allowed to do joint ventures, you know, but they're usually paired with a local state enterprise, which is not much of a partner. Uh, and then those firms are absorbing the technology from the Western firms. So there's just a lot of unhappiness about certain practices. And then the context is China is now the second biggest economy in the world. And other emerging markets have opened up. So China now stands out as following these practices when no one else is following them. Now this brings us to 2017, 2018. So to what extent do you think that the broader Trump strategy of confronting China has has anything to it? Well, when the election was occurring and before it was clear who was going to win, you know, I, I and others have, you know, were writing stuff about U.S. policy toward China. I was in favor of the U.S., kind of very selectively adopting some harsher policies, particularly in the investment realm, because I think a lot of China's distortions are in the investment realm, these restrictions on foreign investment. So it makes sense for the U.S. not to do exactly the same thing. We should do what's good for our economy, uh, but more restrictions on Chinese state enterprises investing in the United States. Um, so I, I was open uh, to playing a certain amount of hardball with China. But all along, I was arguing that imposing tariffs was not going to be a very effective strategy and it was going to be something that hurt the U.S. economy. So I think we're in a pretty confused situation now. I don't think the Chinese understand if the Trump administration's moves are tactical or strategic. And what I mean by that is if it's tactical, it's aimed at trying to get China to open up more, and it, it may not be the smartest tactic, but it may end up having some effect. Uh, there's the potential for U.S. and China to negotiate some kind of agreement that involves you know, China opening up more of its economy and the U.S. withdrawing these tariffs. Uh, and I think that's you – know, there's a pretty good chance that will be the outcome sometime in the first half of 2019. But the Chinese are also increasingly debating whether this is not more of a strategic move on the part of the U.S. in the sense that there's a lot of discussion in Washington on the theme that economic engagement with China has failed. And then there are a lot of strong assertions made that China has not become a market economy. It cheats. It steals technology. You know, I think a lot of that argumentation is not well-grounded in evidence. But you hear people in Washington now talking about disengagement, you know, meaning it's in the interest of the U.S. to separate our economy from China. And if that's what you think, then you want, you want these very high tariffs. You want to make them even higher and you want to make them permanent uh, because that's going to bring about disengagement between China and the U.S. So I think the Chinese are confused about what exactly the Trump administration is looking for 
uh, and whether this can be negotiated into a settlement sometime in the next year. David, thanks so much for being a part of China Econ Talk. Okay, great. China Econ Talk is edited by Kaiser Guo and is a proud member of the Seneca Network from SubChina. For other great shows on China, check out the Pan Daily Tech Buzz China, the New Voices Podcast, and of course, the Seneca Podcast, now in its ninth year. Until next week. Shut